Welcome back to another episode of Lockdown Toronto. I appreciate you tuning back in after such a long time. Well, Toronto is currently in the middle of its second provincial state of emergency and lockdown in dealing with COVID-19. The province has extended its restrictions and increased them in early January, which will now last until late February. Case counts seem to be plateauing. Vaccine rollout is happening with a few hiccups, but generally things seem to be okay and we may be turning a corner. My next guest on this reboot of Lockdown Toronto, the first in our brand new studio, rang the alarm bells on another aspect that he feels hasn't been getting enough attention, the downstream effects of such harsh lockdowns on our population. A lockdown, he says, isn't merited if you simply look at the numbers. And I don't mean just the case counts, but the infection fatality rates, our ICU capacity in Toronto and Ontario, the economic downstream effects, and the effects on mental health and well-being. He says, when you factor all those things in, this round of lockdown is essentially swatting a fly with a hammer. It's misguided and bad policy. And he said all this in a letter to his boss, the Premier of Ontario, Doug Ford. My next guest is Member of Provincial Parliament, Roman Batter, who was recently fired for penning a letter telling his boss he is wrong. He now sits as an independent member of Provincial Parliament for the riding of Downview York Centre. The show isn't necessarily meant to validate his viewpoints or the viewpoints of anyone I bring on, nor be an anti-mask or anti-lockdown uh, show. This show has always been about the nuances of what's happening during our experiences in lockdown. And it's explored through long-form conversations and sometimes heated discussions. In this cast, I definitely press him with questions. In a political world punctuated by us versus them, anti-mask versus pro-mask, anti-lockdown versus pro-lockdown, this show isn't any of that, nor will be tied in with any of that. So enjoy the program with my guest, Member of Provincial Parliament, now sitting independently, Roman Batter. Mr. Babber, thank you for uh, thank you for coming to Lockdown Toronto. Appreciate you being here. Good to be with you. How are you doing so far? I'm well. Yeah. Um, you know, a major weight is off my shoulders. Um, I've struggled for the last couple of months, um, watching many constituents suffering irreparably from the toll of the lockdowns. Um, in fact, in the league, in the weeks leading to um, me writing the letter to Premier Ford, I received so many calls from so many constituents uh, telling me uh, how difficult it is for them to continue under the current circumstances. Uh, I've heard of multiple examples of uh, attempted suicides, of surgeries being cancelled. Many parents spoke to me about the anxiety developed by their children, and I felt that it was my duty to speak out on behalf of my constituents and convey a point of view that has previously been absent from the discussion in COVID-19 response and I'm very happy that um, my mother was able to spark a conversation, a much needed conversation, not just about uh, the risk of COVID, which is very uh, material, but also the toll of the lockdown. So I'm well, thank you. Well, again, thank you for coming on and you know our political viewpoints aren't similar, uh, our political persuasions aren't of a similar ilk, but as I like to do on this show, I like to bring on all types of viewpoints, so I do appreciate you coming on to discuss your, your views. Um, so the letter that came out on January 15th, correct? Um, yeah. you, you mentioned your constituents, that prompted its writing, um, and this kind of coincided with the second round of emergency orders by the government of Ontario to, to lock, down, um, lock down the province. Um, in response to that letter, Premier Ford called it called what you put in that letter irresponsible and misinformation, and you put out a response to that, and which got no response back. Why did he call it that? So first of all, if I may go back to the letter for a minute, I made yeah. the decision to speak out after speaking with hundreds of constituents and people across Ontario. Uh, look, Rob, the, the lockdown is causing more harm than good, in my view. About the impact of the lockdown on health, mental health, the increase of overdoses, suicidal thoughts, and toll on Ontarians, all of which, in my view, must be factored into our decision-making. 
So it's important to have a fair and open discussion, not just about the risk of the virus, but also the catastrophic toll of the lockdown. And for the benefit of your viewers, I did not write from a business standpoint. I did not write about the economy or there's probably one line uh, about jobs and, and the um, wave of bankruptcies and foreclosures that we're facing. But the very bulk, almost my entire letter was about health and, and health and, and the effect of the lockdown on adults and children in our healthcare. And so my paper was very well referenced, uh, probably 10 to 15 citations at least. Regretfully, the Premier's office decided to take on a very, uh, I think, what was inappropriate and demeaning tone and accused me of misinformation uh, based on a number of uh, items in my letter. Uh, first one was healthcare capacity, hospital capacity. Uh, I used the ministry's own numbers. I did not invent numbers. I used numbers provided to me by the ministry. I provincial numbers. They decided to counter that, saying it's misinformation here, the GTA numbers. Uh, I cited uh, a mental health association study uh, where I cited the numbers accurately, but we disagreed with respect to the conclusion, and I'll, I'll deal with that later, but the mental health association thinks that it's the pandemic uh, that's causing the suicidal thoughts and feelings, and I'm saying it's the lockdown. 20% uh, of, of Canadians age 19 to 35 are, depre are de uh, depressed uh, or, or having feelings of suicide not because of the carnage and long-term care, which the government can fix, but because they're locked down. Um, and so the Mental Health Association came out, uh, which is a stakeholder of the government, came out and attacked me very hard. The Hospital Association came out and attacked me on, uh, on capacity. And uh, I, did, I did make a typo on the infection uh, fatality rate. I put a percentage mark after a rate. I did say it was a rate. I, I have a for that crystal clear what the intent was, the number was referenced from the CDC, and yet the government decided to go low. But be that as it may, the government never actually responded to the real issue, which is, what is the toll of the lockdown? And I call it the, the, the equation. Even though we may be coming from, from different political spectrums, Rob, we yeah. are both reasonable people, and we can agree that we don't want to do more harm than good. I understand, simply from a healthcare perspective, whether what we're doing by way of lockdown is doing more harm than good. Let me give you an example. Sure. An oncologist from Princess Margaret Hospital that came out in an article that I cited, cancer screenings are down 40% at Princess Margaret Hospital. So we're diagnosing cancer late or we're missing it. And that leads to much worse healthcare outcomes. And that is happening generally because people do not have the same access to healthcare as they would, but for COVID response. People are also afraid to go to the hospital because of COVID, because we're consistently telling them that they have to stay home and they have to be afraid. And as a result, we're risking their health vis-a-vis -vis cancer. So should we not consider what if any effect the lockdown has on our health and weigh that against COVID at large? Sure we do. And that's essentially what, what I'm getting at, is that we need to look at a bunch of parameters canceling surgeries, mental health, opioid overdose, which we'll talk about in a minute, and a host of other items that we need to, to, to weigh against the risk of COVID generally. So I do want to get a bit more into the meat and potatoes of the letter, and you addressed a few points there already, and I really appreciate that. But I do really want to go into the politics of this a little bit. Um, did you bring these, prior to putting the letter out publicly, did you bring these concerns to the Premier of Ontario or his political staff uh, that would be in charge of policy at all? I have spoken to the Premier multiple times on all issues. Uh, in fact, I, I thank Premier Ford for the audience that he has given me uh, over my tenure with the PC Caucus for two and a half years. There was, in fact, an article in iPolitics saying that Premier Ford has not met with any MPP more than with Roman Babber MPP pre-pandemic um, and, and subsequent to the beginning to the, of the pandemic as well. We, we have spoken numerous times. Um, so yes, I, I have brought those concerns forward. Uh, and in fact, I've articulated a lot of the concerns specifically in the letter. Concerns that are, are fortified with daily data that we're getting. You know, uh, we, we both love the city of Toronto very much. And uh, I'm a resident of Toronto, and it's what is happening to the city of Toronto, 
City of Toronto came out with uh, a news uh, release uh, three days ago in which they said that uh, drug overdoses are 67% up year over year from 2020, 67% up over 2019. Uh, opioid overdoses alone, not all drugs, but just opioid overdoses, calls to paramedics with a suspected fatal overdose were up 90% from 2019 to 2020. So that would be, in my view, those lives have to be taken into account and, and consideration must be made into whether the fact that we are denying healthcare, denying basic life tenants have an impact on folks that causes a spike in addiction, a spike in mental health crisis, a spike in, in all sorts of adverse consequences. Those are fair considerations I submit. And those are considerations that are absent from the discussion today, but not in, in the last week or so, they're finally coming to the forefront. And I'm, I'm very relieved that we're finally talking about that. So would you say, so some, some have pointed out that this particular government, this uh, progressive conservative government, uh, has had a record number of, of party members and elected members leave. Um, would you say there is a problem with um, dissenting opinions in caucus meetings, for example, uh, the, the closed door meetings that any party has uh, in elected office? Uh, were these, vo these concerns voiced there and were there other colleagues that uh, were uh, uh, echoing your concerns as well during these meetings and did they fall on deaf, ear deaf ears? Bob, I can't get into specific conversations and I will respect and cause confidentiality. But I think there are numerous media reports out there indicating that there is, um, there are folks that are in agreement with the view that I've articulated, which is we're potentially doing more harm than good with lockdowns. We, we have to look at whether the lockdowns actually work as well. And it doesn't necessarily need to be lockdowns or nothing. It's not clear that the lockdown has any effect. Yes, cases go down when we don't leave the house. But what happens once we leave the house? Cases are immediately gonna go up. Most important is that lockdowns don't have any effect on the metrics that truly matter. And that's ICU, hospitalizations, and deaths. You can have 100,000 young Torontonians get COVID tomorrow, God forbid, and you're not gonna have any hospitalizations. Or you can have 200 seniors in long-term care get COVID tomorrow, and God forbid 100 of them will die. Right? So it's not about how many people, it's not about how many cases, it's about who is vulnerable to COVID. And, and COVID is a very real virus. But our understanding of COVID has substantially improved since last March and April. We thought that the world was ending in March and April, but it is not. What we have found, regrettably, is generally it's very dangerous to folks that are living in group homes. So more than 80% of of people that tragically, and my heart goes out to every one of those families that from COVID live in, in congregate homes. And, and we have failed. We have failed them to, this government has failed them to their credit. The iron ring did not work. Till this day, we still Explain don't Explain what the iron ring is for those who are watching, because not, not many, not everyone will understand what the iron ring is and from a policy perspective. Sure. In late March, when, when finally the province got around to COVID preparedness, you remember that just in the days before COVID, maybe a day or two before March break, Doug said, you guys all go on March break and enjoy. Clearly, he had no idea what was on the horizon, which is also astonishing. But the government decided to throw all of its resources into hospitals. And, and that has been a prevailing theme. Sometime in April, it became clear that it's folks in long-term care that are subjected to the bulk of, of danger here. And so the government decided late, albeit, to move resources and try to protect long-term care. And they announced this iron ring, supposedly, around long-term care. Well, 10 months later, that iron ring is malfunctioning, is, is still letting COVID through, 
and is still exposing vulnerable seniors. So what you really need to do is you finally need to get infection protocol and control right. Done in so many of these homes. The second thing you need to do, and the government was very late on that, is they were very late in preventing uh, staff from working in multiple homes. And still, till this day, you have situation where agency workers, temp workers, work in long-term care homes. And so they potentially, all it takes is one. The COVID is very transmittable and very dangerous to those populations. So it takes, it's not a city of 3 million Torontonians that are currently locked down and are suffering. It takes one staff from one long-term care home to go to another long-term care home and bring in COVID. And that can be addressed with proper infection protocol and control and with proper PPE. So that hasn't happened. And that can also be addressed with making sure that you can only work at one home and not multiple homes. And that also has not happened. So they should focus on long-term care where the, where the most of the deaths are instead of again, imprisoning 15 million Ontarians and making those that are healthy, actually making them sick with a lot. So do you, so what explains then the policy around this, if it's just an, uh, if the solution to deal with it is uh, a piecemeal acute approach to a certain s section of the demographic that will allow for better controls uh, for the vulnerable population versus this kind of broad um, lockdown of the entire province, is it, is it security theater? And I don't mean that in a pejorative sense. I mean that in like uh, uh, when you go to the airport and, you know, it's been proven that people can get through airport security with pretty much anything. But the purpose of the airport security is to create a sense of safety uh, partially uh, versus actual the iron, iron tight, iron, uh, ironclad security. Do you think the province went overly broad with this to hammer home to the public uh, the seriousness of this situation and, for, and to maybe demonstrate to them that the government was taking this seriously? Do you think there is a lot of politics at play here with that? Yeah, so, so your question is what is happening and why it's happening? So to your response to, to your question of what is happening prevented them from, from executing and, and focusing on where they need to be and accomplishing that task. The answer is simple. It's just incompetence and mismanagement. Well, well it's, so it's you, you were on the inside during this. Where, yeah. where did the incompetence and mismanagement lie? Because I look at, I'm, I'm very critical of the federal government's response on this because they were the, first, the front line on allowing uh, the, the poorest borders. Uh, I arrived back in Canada from a travel overseas in Asia uh, on March 15th, and there were zero controls in place, despite two months earlier, the, 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 um, uh, the Prime Minister saying to, to Parliament that all checks in, were, were in place at the borders, the best practices were in place at the hospitals, and I saw none of that even two months later. Um, so I'm very critical of where the mismanagement and negligence lies. In your discussions on the inside, what was happening there? Were they just not caring enough and just putting on a good face about it? Or were they dealing with bad numbers? Uh, you alluded uh, a bunch to bad modeling. Was it primarily based on that? Were they just listening to the wrong people? What is it, in your opinion? There's a whole... So, so Rob, that is... Uh, you've asked multiple questions there. Um, Take your time. We're, 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 we've got a lot of time. But... but First, I, I, will, I will speak to, um, I have uh, alerted um, Premier Ford and many others in my government multiple times that uh, with respect, our Chief Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Williams, uh, and is unable to um, have execute um, a proper infection protocol and control in long-term care to plan for the second wave that actually ended up hitting long-term care. Able to lead uh, a department that time and time again gets ICU modeling wrong. 
and hospital capacity wrong. And this is very, very important because it's on the basis of such modeling that extraordinary healthcare decisions. Let me give you an example. Two weeks ago, uh, in, the, in the Monday before the Friday letter, a constituent called me, his mom's uh, heart surgery, she was supposed to have a valve replacement surgery, uh, canceled. Um, the hospital couldn't guarantee a bed, even though, I understand, and, and, and I knew for a fact, the hospital would have a bed. You have COVID preparedness by models where we ration healthcare. The capacity issue, nothing is new here. Our capacity is better than it's been in the last three years. The GTA capacity is at maximum. That is not unusual. It's called hallway healthcare. We campaigned on hallway healthcare. But what is primarily driving this healthcare situation within the hospitals is COVID protocol beds off the table, we, we take rooms off the table, we, we remove wards, we, we designate wards, we, we uh, isolate staff for a prolonged period of time. We have a host of issues that is driving, that is driving this. So this constituent's mom was unable to get surgery and most based in planning and the planning is based in model. So I've used an example uh, on September the 30th, uh, Dr. Brown, who is the head modeler on the COVID science man table, showed up before caucus and then subsequently before Ontarians. And if given where we are today, we're going to maintain the case trajectory of the state of Michigan, approximately 45 patients that we have in ICU today, in a month now, over, we're going to be at approximately 260, 270 patients. In a month from now, if we stick the course on cases, we're going to be at over 250 cases. So a month later, end of October, what transpired, and in fact, we did meet the case trajectory of Michigan. It's not that we locked down Toronto and Peel as we did early October, and, and cases went below the trajectory. No, we met the trajectory that he worried about. But the number of people in ICU at the end of October was not 260 like he predicted. It was 67. He was off by a factor of three and a half times. So he basically was informing all the policy. They, Premier Ford was sticking to all the policy, uh, um, the modeling to create the policy. I mean, even as right. the, 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 January, the he mentioned that when you see the modeling, you'll fall off your chair. So right. it was just a failure of him believing the modeling or no, was there No, it's that the else? modeling is always wrong. It's the modeling is always off. And it's not the change in, in modeling by virtue of our own behavior. A lot of people say, well, Roman, we locked down. And so we changed the trajectory. No, we meet the case trajectory. We don't meet the metrics that truly matter which is hospitalizations and specifically ICU and deaths. Those are always off and that's what matters. And this goes back to the point that you and I had before. You get a million Torontonians today, a million of them under the age of let's say 40, get COVID and you will not see a, a smidget in the increase of hospitalization or, or deaths. God forbid less than 200 people or 200 people under the age of 60 died in the entire province of Ontario with COVID, not from COVID, but with COVID. So the numbers are, are just remarkable. So and you think while the- every death, While every, one second, let, let me finish. Every death sure. is tragic. We have to, if more people are dying from the change in opioid overdose than from COVID, then maybe we need to, maybe we're not doing something right. So the modeling is, but, but if you have a hundred seniors getting COVID in long-term care, 50 of them, God forbid, will pass away. So it's not the number of cases, it's who's getting the cases and where. And so the modeling is very aggressive. He says, this is what's gonna happen by way of cases. And as a result, this is what's gonna happen by way of hospitalizations, except that it never happens. But it's in response to those warnings that we make extraordinary healthcare decisions that compromises the healthcare of Ontarians. So one of the things obviously is the modeling and its inaccuracy and the government relying on it 
uh, overly relying on it in your estimation, uh, given its inaccuracy. How much of this is the politicization of lockdowns and COVID-19? And uh, we can point to examples south of the border of how it became politicized very quickly um, by the president down there. Um, and also we see the way Alberta responded to this and how specifically uh, Premier Jason Kenney, uh, his approval numbers went down when he started a uh, more moderate approach to the lockdowns. Is that level of politics at play here as well, would you say? Absolutely. In, in fact, I, I believe that, that most of what's transpiring right now is almost exclusively political. So they're just watching poll numbers and they're responding based on that. So they think they're doing the right thing simply based on electoral politics. I think that that is the primary driver. There's another driver, which is Doug Ford is probably afraid that there's a, if there's any daylight between him and, and the so-called experts, the chief medical officer of health, that he will be blamed for every subsequent death as to not listening to the experts. And so he's afraid of, of, of leadership. He's afraid of making the right decision. But in reality, there's a lot of people that disagree with this approach. There's mainly doctors, dozens of doctors authored letters directly to the premier and to the prime minister. They were published in four major papers. There were four major papers published different letters from different doctors saying the lockdown is catastrophic on people and on children. It's not as if there are no voices that support my view. In fact, three days after my letter, the former chief medical officer of health Dr. Dr. Richard Chavis, who served as chief medical officer for 10 years and also uh, played a major role in the SARS crisis in the early 2000s, came out and said, MP Roman Babber was right on all five points. The lockdown is just compounding on the misery and it's misguided. Focus on vulnerable populations, focus on building capacity, but keep, but, but stop this collective punishment that's not getting us anywhere. We're not saving any folks in long-term care right now by being locked down. We're not saving any folks in group, in group homes. We're not, we're just, we're just compounding on the misery of, of, of people and children. We're killing their lives and livelihoods. And we really need to think twice about this. The argument here is not economic. The argument is that of healthcare. So Richard, right? Richard Chavez, I want to get to uh, Dr. Rich, Richard Chavez's uh, uh, coming out in support of you. He, I think it was him who pointed out the difference between uh, infection um, fatality rate and case fatality rate. And the number uses the, uh, sorry, the, the province uses the latter and that adds to some of the misinformation uh, that some people are saying is being used uh, to justify the lockdown policies. Can you explain that a little bit? The yeah, difference absolutely. between those two? Sure. So case fatality rate is the total number of people dying that are diagnosed with COVID. Because for every person that is walking tested positive with COVID, there's also people out there walking and they've never been tested. They're just asymptomatic. There's cases, that means that they were subjected to a test and then there's infections. Of course, the infection rate is a lot higher than the case rate. So for every, let's say, there are studies in Europe, there are studies in New York and LA that, that said early on that for every person they gets tested and with and positive for COVID, there's about 20 out there walking with COVID, never being tested. So it's important to consider not just how many of those that have tested die, but how many of those that are mathematically infected, how many of those die? That is the number that matters because cases can be meaningless. And so Dr. Shabas came out and said that the province should not be using case fatality rate. It's meaningless, it's wrong, and they're probably doing that to scare folks into lockdown. And, and this is a point that was lost on the media or it was not covered by the media, and, and that's very, very regretful. That here you have a credible chief, former chief officer of health, who in fact participated in the training of the current medical officer of health, Dr. Williams, says you guys are using the wrong metrics and you're doing this to fear monger. So in the fear-mongering, do you think that there is a noble effort uh, embedded in that, even on some, some level? We've seen 
the anti-mask protests, especially here in Toronto. Uh, we've seen the civil disobedience like the Adamson barbecue example. Um, and if there's any, maybe the province believes that if there's any wiggle room in where we should be going and, and how we should be approaching this crisis, uh, those types of people um, and that group of idea set will unravel what's going on in, 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 in our efforts to combat this. Uh, some, other people yes. said, some other people have said that, you know, it's like a forest fire, you sprinkle a little water on it. Yeah, it's not working, but it doesn't mean you stop sprinkling water on it. Um, so, so, what do you, so what are you saying, uh, Robert, that their misinformation, their fear-mongering is well-intentioned and government should, government should be spreading? fear-mongering that's predicated on metrics that they shouldn't be using as, as residents, as, as citizens, we're not owed any better, uh, have to be threatened into submission using false metrics. That's not right. I'm, a, should... I, I'm an evidence-based guy, so I'm always about knowing yeah. the truth and knowing the reality. So, um, so, so no, and in, fact, and in fact, it's this fear-mongering that has imposed a untold toll fear and paranoia on folks that are not at, generally at risk for COVID and that and, and, and children regretfully have objected to the greatest fear that will potentially harm them for life. Zero children, zero children died from COVID in the province of Ontario. And to suggest to a child that if they play with another child, that they may be putting their lives at risk, lives at risk is utterly false and inappropriate and harmful to children. I constituents all every day, Rob, this one I hear every day. My child developed anxiety, that my child has paranoia, that my ch I don't recognize my child, that I'm estranged from my child. That sort of, if, if, if it, now early on in the process, I get it, but now there's no justification for it. And I, I'm calling on the health minister and I'm calling the premier to come up and say, and kids are definitely safe at school. They're less safe at school than they are at home because they miss their friends. They have to have socialization. They're regressing academically. And we, it's not that we did right by kids and stop imprisoning them at home. Well, I mean, there's also the case that children can be carriers and asymptomatic carriers and then take it to more vulnerable parts of the, of, of the population. Um, I mean, I was we're watching, not, I was watching, okay, we're, we're I was watching the, the numbers just start ticking up uh, that were released by um, the, the TDSB um, in terms of, uh, of the numbers in the Ontario School Board uh, or the numbers that were listed on the website there, the Ontario numbers across the school boards, um, it was just constantly ticking up. Now, every one of those kids could catch it in a classroom, bring it home to maybe uh, a multi-generational household where a, a vulnerable grandparent is, is there. Um, I mean, there is some case there for keeping children away from others who might be caring. Is there not? Okay, but, not but, but maybe we should keep them away from grandma, but not from other children and from the very vulnerable grandma with multiple pre-existing conditions. But sure, how do you ensure that you, you, can, you can create policy that, 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 that protects people in public institutions? You can't yeah. necessarily create and enforce policy that protects vulnerable grandmothers in a multi-generational household, right? So. But we're seeing, but we're seeing that the that more than 80% of the actual deaths, of the 6,000 deaths that we have currently in Ontario. Sure. 6,000, that's it. And everyone is tragic, but, but this is an important number. From that number, over 80%, okay, that's almost 5,000 people are in congregate homes, not at home. And, and you're saying also, I, I point to you, and, and, and here we have seen some statistics from the Ministry of Education. It's typically adults that give COVID to children, not the other way around. Children are not a great vector, uh, a source of spread for COVID. 
that that is i believe something that everyone should be able to acquiesce in but what solution to lock all these kids down indefinitely to continue this carnage we're imposing on on children that are sitting at home scared to make it difficult for parents to continue to exist no we need to reassess the risk we need to be honest with the risk but most importantly we need to factor in the cost of the risk if if you see i shared an article today on twitter uh, from the global mail about 10s ago that young adults are developing a remarkable amount shadow pandemic the global mail called it shadow pandemic of eating disorders our young people so what we should not care about bulimia or anorexia or god forbid diabetes that you can develop sure we should right or, or the the Toronto Star has wrote about it extensively a couple of days ago the Toronto Star if we, we see media coverage changing the Toronto Star wrote injuries to babies in, in the last couple of days where you see a remarkable uptick of those and that's happening from what's happening within the home i have right to say very often the the source of stress is in the home be it an abusive parent or or an abusive sibling and compound to that the stress of the lockdown and god forbid compound on employment on it or or loss of livelihood people are end people are at an end rob and it, it's time that we we recognize that and had a meaningful conversation about what we're doing here and what it is we should be doing next so speaking of timing now you released the letter pretty much at our height of cases in Ontario. Um, many uh, suggest that a few months from now, the weather warms up a little bit. Um, the vaccinations will increase uh, like a one-two punch that will start, will start turning the corner. Your traditional flu season starts ending due to warm weather. And also, we have a vaccination schedule ramping up. Why not wait at least a few months to see whether or not, uh, you know, the policies are starting to work, the vaccinations are starting to work, we start turning the corner, and some of the lockdown starts getting lifted. Why did you release it at the, the height? What, what, what compelled you to do it then and not just wait a few months? Yeah, so we've seen other countries with warmer climates in the southern hemisphere that have the opposite of our weather. Uh, countries like Australia, countries like South Africa also experience, also experience where Israel, Israel had four waves of, um, of, of COVID there in the northern hemisphere, but the weather there is, is fairly warm all year round. So it's clear, even though there is a seasonal element to this virus, doesn't necessarily extinguish in, in warmer weather. We know that. More importantly is the false thinking that a vaccine is going to get us out of the situation. So I will be taking the vaccine. I look forward to being vaccinated. Same but, here. And to anyone also, out there watching, you better as well. I mean, it's well, absolutely no, necessary. I, I, no, Rob, we, we, should, we, should, we should respect folks and, and what they think. I mean, we're better as well. Young women are I'm not an elected person, so I'm going to speak my mind. Get sure. the vaccine. <laughs> so you okay. can you can so, be moderate about that, but I'm not going to. I'm definitely telling people, sure. go so, get it. So, Give me yours if you don't want it. I'll inject it into my eyeball. I do not care. Get the vaccine. Okay. If I may just speak to why the vaccine is not a viable exit strategy. Sure. Now, we see the challenges in distribution and production, and they're very, very lengthy. It takes a year to get ready for a flu season for the, with a flu shot, with a new formula and distribution uh, challenges at large. This is going to be a very complex project. So this is going to take at least a good year. That's number one. Number two, public health wants a very high threshold of vaccine immunity. They want about 70%, a good amount of immunity. That is not viable because children are not eligible for the vaccine under 19 or under 18. Young women who are pregnant may become pregnant. It was at least until recently not recommended that they take it. A lot of them will not take it. And people with uh, protein allergies also uh, are discouraged. And, and so that already bites into the 100%, which brings you much closer to the 70% that public health is looking for, compounded by folks that are generally uneasy. There was a poll a couple of days ago saying that a 
if 40% of Canadians, uh, well, 30% of Canadians want a wanted see approach to see how this vaccine plays out, and 10% said they will not take it at all. So we may not hit the threshold. But the threshold is just a recommendation. We elect people to make those decisions. And if public case counts start diminishing to the point where it does not justify lockdown. Yeah, but, but that's not what the vaccine does. The vaccine doesn't stop the transmission according to public health. It just reduces hospitalization. But here's the main reason why vaccination is not going to get us out of this. Corona is mutated. Corona mutates all the time. There's not thousands. mutate. There's variants. There's a difference. Sure. So the very, okay, well, a different version of it, it's because it evolves. So there's a variant already said that, and, and they came out and there's a major article about this in Forbes magazine that believe that their vaccine is only good for a year and another shot will be required in a year from now. Pfizer may cover the UK variant, but not cover the South African variant. We will always be behind Corona and various variants that are going to arise from Corona. So for anyone thinking that vaccine is gonna magically get us out of this crisis, they're wrong. And I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm not making, this is, this is Moderna's own words. So take them at their words and say that the vaccine, getting vaccinated this year will not end the COVID saga, which we have to rethink our approach to COVID if we're to continue living. So, I mean, the government of Canada committed to providing a vaccine to anyone who wants it by September. Um, you know, given that some of the hiccups happening in the distribution of it, um, that might be pushed back. Who knows? Um, but again, it begs the question, why not just wait and see until that point before issuing a letter? And especially since last summer we saw the case counts dip. when our because, weather... we're, because Ontarians are at an end. Yeah. Because the healthcare cost by way of lives and livelihoods is significantly greater than COVID. If we're missing cancer, it's greater than COVID. If, we're, if, if we have double the amount of overdoses, it may be greater than COVID. If we have adults developing eating disorders, if we, if we have depression en masse, we're raising a generation that's afraid of normal existence. Why do we not weigh that into the public policy that we're enduring, which is why I said that the medicine may be worse than the disease. So you can wait till September, but why continue administering medicine that is killing the patient more than they're saving the patient? When it's not that that policy is working at all, because you can reduce cases, but it doesn't mean that you're reducing the exposure to actually the vulnerable population that is hurt by this. And I'm telling you one more time, Rob, even if you did in September, you're gonna have a new variant potentially that the shot is not going to cover. We know that there is such variant already, and that's the South African one. So that strategy just doesn't work. So do you think this is a symptom of the downstream effects not getting enough attention in the media, COVID-19 taking, taking up all the oxygen in the room when it comes to coverage of this, um, in just the nature of people not being able to get cancer screenings, mental health issues, eating disorders, um, the economic downstream effects, just being just suicides. more nebulous suicides, being more nebulous issues for the media to kind of uh, get their hands around and describe to people as being part of the effect of, of what's going on in the lockdown. I mean, is it just a matter of the government treating what's exactly right in front of it first and worrying about the other stuff later? Or are they consciously ignoring uh, all those other effects in other words, is there are there uh, policy approaches? Uh, are there policy yeah, I, approaches that they could take and they are not taking uh, in order to address these things? Rob, I, I, I don't. The fundamental question you asked is why wasn't the media shining a spotlight on, on the adverse effects of lockdown? That's the fundamental question, and I agree with you. And I'm I'm not sure exactly why. Maybe for the same reason that we up until my letter we had a complete hesitation to speak publicly about the catastrophe that public health has imposed uh, on the province of Ontario. Has been the, this, this is a dogma that developed, a politically correct narrative fortified by very strong council culture. If you speak about not COVID, God forbid I'm not, COVID is very real. I just asked to speak about the other issues that are, arise from COVID response and that from caucus. So, 
people have this hesitation of speaking out and the media did so as well. And so finally, finally, this conversation is now changing. We're comfortably talking about the effect of the lockdown. The media started covering it more in the last couple of weeks. And hopefully that will lead us to a greater public conversation and therefore better decision-making instead of just tunnel vision and groupthink on the effects of COVID in absence of any other considerations. So other than media coverage, what could, let's say you were premier tomorrow, what would you do immediately? The top five things you would do immediately policy-wise in order to not only address those issues, um, but take a better approach towards dealing with COVID-19. Yeah, it's the framework that I've articulated at the end of my letter. And that is number one, protect term care. Throw all of your resources at where the problem is, which is in group homes. Number two, build capacity, build hospital capacity if capacity is required. I don't believe that it's required. If it's required, build it. Number three, reevaluate and communicate the risk of COVID differently. So you stop scaring folks needlessly. So you stop scaring young children needlessly. And, and look at the data, don't, don't hypothesize and j just look at the data of, of, God forbid, where the mortality is and, and in which age categories and, and where is it focused. Make folks less scared. And finally, lift the lockdown. And that means back to school and back to work. So, so people can start healing. So kids can start healing. So our communities and, and society and our city starts. So long, protect long-term care where most of the problem is, build capacity, provide a fair narrative regarding the risk of the virus and lift the lockdown. Did you expect to be um, removed from the party apparatus when you released the letter? I knew there would be consequences. I wasn't sure what the consequences would be. I prefer not to discuss politics. I'm at peace with my decision. I'm happy that we're having this conversation now because we would not have dreamt having this conversation just a couple of weeks ago or seeing the media that we're seeing now. So I am, I'm, I'm at peace with what transpired. What, does, what explains the distinction between the Premier's approach with you and that of the former finance minister who went away on vacation over the holidays and was simply demoted from his position versus kicked out of the party apparatus? Was it because he bent the knee and you basically came out against the, pol the, the party's policy? I'm not sure. Rob, maybe if I wrote the letter from St. Bart's, I would still be in caucus. That's throwing some shade. I appreciate that. Um, so getting on a, a, little, a little bit more personal level, um, do you know anyone personally affected health-wise, not your constituents, but personally felt, uh, affected health-wise by COVID-19? Yes. And what, did, what do they feel about your position on this? What are their feelings on, um, on your letter, the content of your letter? They're, I have received primarily only encouraging and thankful messaging in response to my letter. Multiple young people, I spoke to multiple adults. Uh, one of my best friends had uh, did, did not have COVID himself, but but had some COVID in his family. Uh, I had another. I have another very close friend who's passed away, in fact, from COVID. Um, so I, I have not been sheltered from this discussion. I speak to hundreds and thousands of people, and. Um, I stand by my uh, assessment and I, I say to them, look, um, thank you for, for standing by me in my attempt to effectively protect so many folks that are currently voiceless, babies, um, women in abusive relationships, unemployed, those whose cancer diagnosis has been missed, those that died of overdose, whereas because their addiction program was canceled, 
Without a voice. So you, you represent the riding of uh, York Center, an area that we're both f very familiar with. Your constituents have been overwhelmingly supportive of your position? Yes. Has there been any pushback whatsoever? Sure. Yeah. And but I would say I would say that comparatively, uh, it it was about ten to one positive. Now the premier obviously has said that you would not be permitted to run again for York Center under the PC banner. Uh, do you plan to run as an independent? I don't know. Do you think the support of your constituents support that? Because we all know how um, difficult that would be, right? I'm not thinking about politics one bit right now. Um, I will only continue focusing on speaking out and encouraging others to speak out about the danger of lockdowns and what they're doing uh, to the population at large. I will, I'm determined to continue working on those long, along those lines for now. So politics aside, there was no plan B in case you did get removed and the premier took this approach? Um, there was no plan whatsoever. The only thing I wanted to do is to spark a conversation and cover and encourage to other folks to come out and speak out, whether they're in places of decision-making or not. To feel comfortable calling out the catastrophe that is being perpetuated every day. City of Toronto news release from January 29th, uptick in overdoses. Look at the Canadian Mental Health Association study from September. Look at what's happening by way of cancer screenings. Look at what's happening by way of heart surgeries. So that's that's the only thing that matters to me. And I, I paid a political price for it and I'm content with it. Roman, I really appreciate you coming on the show uh, and facing some pressing questions um, and describing your viewpoints. Um, is there any way people can follow what you're doing and keep in touch with you? Well, what, what I tell folks is that uh, the best thing they can do is they can support my petition to lift the lockdown at uh, romanbabber.ca. My first name, my last name, um, log on and um, support my petition uh, to the government of Ontario to lift the lockdown. Thank you for taking the time with us today, and I appreciate it again, and stay safe. Roman. Thank you. Be well, Rob. Thank you for your time. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Lockdown Toronto. I really appreciate you coming along for the ride. Uh, I really found this episode really interesting, and I hope you did too. If you want to watch it online, there's a bunch of past episodes you can watch. You can listen to them, subscribe in your podcatcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you find it. Just look for Lockdown Toronto. You can also go to pod6.com to catch all the links there. Uh, you can comment on Facebook, on our page there, the Pod6 Network. Um, and if you have any questions or concerns, info at pod6.com. We'll get them right to me. That's info at pod6ix.com. Uh, and that will send you an email straight to me. Uh, thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you in the next one.